Welcome, everyone. My name is Juleen Jackson. I'm the National Vice President for Moms for America over Cottage Meetings. Thank you so much for coming to our Healing of America seminar. Tonight, we're on the last section of the Constitution. I am coming tonight with my husband who teaches uh, with me on our Thursday evening class, Al Jackson. It's always fun to be able to teach with you, sweetheart. Thanks, Jaleen. <laughs> yes, Al and I have been driving across the country to a family reunion from Washington, D.C. to Utah. And we broke down <laughs> in Ogallala, Nebraska. And it was like planes, trains, automobiles, and tow trucks because it was a Saturday afternoon in a small town and everything was closed. There was no Ubers, no lifts, no taxis, no buses. Um, we had to wait hours in a hot car for the the tow truck. It was the funniest thing. And <laughs> I wasn't yeah, laughing. Yeah, I wasn't laughing for a while. <laughs> but he, he found his um, sense of humor about, uh, what, 10 hours later. Yeah, right. It's a little intense. But we're here. We've been at the lake all day today. I know you as well. I mean, in the summer, everything that you're juggling, all the activities and the vacations and and so forth. And so I just I just really commend you because you continue to learn and study and do what you need to to prepare yourself to save America. The, the work of, you know, shoring up the four walls of this country goes on even in the summertime, even in the midst of all the activities we have with our family and children and so forth. So we're here. So we're, we're thrilled uh, that you could join us. So we are on the tail end of the Constitution. We are on week number um, eight of the 16 weeks, and we have been uh, going through the Constitution this week, and, and this week we will study Amendments 11 through 27. Now, remember, if you ever miss any classes, we all these classes are recorded, so you just go to momsforamerica.us, uh, go down to view presentations, and you can watch these classes. So our, we have these little manuals, the Founders Charter Freedom, and we spend four weeks in each uh, manual. And so we're in section four in the last section, there's four sections in each one of these manuals. And so I hope as you go through this, they're filling the blank and, and studies show that when you have to listen and hear and write and have multiple sensory experiences, your retention of the material goes up. And if you review something after 48 hours of learning it, your comprehension and retention goes up as well. They say almost 50% if you will review what you've learned. And so the whole ideal, uh, ideal is to idea is to fill in the blanks before you come to class so you you know every day if you just spend 10-15 minutes in the lesson by the time the lesson rolls around the next week your your blanks are all filled in but even if not after class or during class you can be filling in the in the blanks but we have a, an acronym Viv can you put up that acronym for the first seven articles so there's seven articles in the constitution and 27 amendments and last week we talked about the last uh, four articles, the state's rights, how to amend the constitution, the supremacy clause and ratification of the constitution. And then we talked about the, la or the first 10 amendments which were known as the Bill of Rights. So here's the acronym to help memorize the seven articles in the constitution, Legislature, Legislature, Legislature. 
So uh, last week we talked about under the state's rights, their full faith and credit. So what is recognized driver licenses, court decisions, divorce proceedings is recognized in one state. It will be recognized in another state. So there's natural uh, rights of being citizens. And then there's acquired rights, special privileges of belonging to certain states. And then uh, we talked about the supremacy clause, um, how, uh, what is the supreme law of the land? It's not judicial uh, uh, legislation. It's not executive orders. It is the constitution. It's the statutes that come out of Congress and it's treaties. And we talked about those first 10 amendments. Those are the amendments that our founding fathers gave us that they said were struck off by the hand of God. And under the first hundred years of our history, under the seven articles and the 10 and 11 and 12th amendment, which we'll talk about tonight, you know, we went from having 6% of the world's population, 7% of the world's land mass, but yet we are producing over 50% of the world's wealth. And the world could really see the genius and magic of working under limited government and a free market. And things began to change in the last hundred years, because as we uh, added more amendments and uninspired amendments, it really disrupted the checks and balances and the markets in this country. And we and we're, have lived to see this. And we're gonna talk about some of these uninspired amendments that came after our founding fathers, particularly in the 1900s. So, you know, just, just to touch on briefly that very first amendment, our very first freedom was the right to exercise our religion as we saw fit, that the government wasn't to, to um, establish a religion. And when we say government, the federal government wasn't supposed to, they didn't want the federal government to establish a, a state or a federal religion. Remember, they had just broken away from King George III, where there was a state religion, the Church of England. You had to prescribe and worship uh, in that church, and they didn't want a federal, they called it a state uh, religion, but they meant a federal. They wanted the individual states to dictate along with their citizens how they were going to exercise, you know, their religion. And so remember when a group of um, a Baptist, uh, um, Danbury, uh, were they Baptist? Danbury, Connecticut. Yeah, ministers uh, wrote a letter to Thomas Jefferson in 1802 when he was the president. And they said they wanted him to get involved because the Connecticut was feuding about religion. And he said there should be a separation of church and state. Now, what he meant was there should, there should be a separation of the federal government and the church. You guys need to figure it out on your own. You know, I'm not, as the president of the United States, I'm not going to tell Connecticut, you know, how they should do religion in their state. So what we know, though, is 150 years later, the Supreme Court distorted that, that statement of Thomas Jefferson. And they used that as the impetus to begin to, to punish states and to remove religions from schools throughout the country. That's when you saw school prayer removed in 1950. You could no longer read Bible uh, verses. You, some schools that my kids have attended and we, our kids have attended in the last uh, decade, you couldn't in Oregon even uh, pledge allegiance because the mention of God. And, and that's because of some of the uh, edicts that have come down off the federal bench and then uh, misapplying and misinterpreting what Thomas Jefferson said uh, when he said that there should be a separation of church and state. 
And so remember in Amendments 9 and 10 that we talked about last week that our founding fathers gave us because they gave us the first 10 amendments, the Bill of Rights and 11 and 12, they clearly said in amendments 9 and 10 that if something isn't spelled out in the Constitution, it should go back to the states to, to figure out how, how it should be. They wanted limited and carefully defined powers for the federal government. And all other things should be decided uh, with the states and the people respectively. And so I hope as, you know, we're on lesson, we're week number four of the Constitution. It's taken us four weeks to go through seminar two that you're, you're kind of beginning to sense, and it might take a little more study of the Constitution, but the Constitution was written to protect families. Look, God's program is families. He set that pattern out in the, what, the first book of Genesis. Adam and Eve are to multiply and replenish the earth. Now, we know Satan's plan is to destroy families. And he wants us to think that, you know, we got to look to Washington, D.C. To, to tell us what to do and to figure out our problems. No, certainly not God. And our, our founders knew that the, their highest priority was to protect the family. Because when you have strong families, you will have strong societies. And when you have a strong societies, you will have a strong nation. Now, we're, we're going to learn, especially in Seminar 3 starting next week, that the enemies of freedom... The enemies of America uh, want a kingly government with centralized power in Washington, D.C., and they really want to keep people and families ignorant. They want them to think that they have to look two, three, four thousand, three thousand miles away to Washington, D.C. to, uh, you know, help them solve their problems. And, and they kind of want to keep us emotionally charged and, and ignorant because from ignorance, you know, then, then you have fear. When you have fear, you have uh, hate and hate leads to anger and anger leads to violence. And in the last few years, we've seen this kind of violence amongst the citizenry. So if we don't know our constitution, we'll kind of be drawn into this emotionalism that we're seeing a lot of. Now, God has told us this nation shall prevail. This nation shall endure. And remember in Second Chronicles, if you'll turn to me and seek my face, I can heal your land. So, you know, it, and, and he says, you need to repent of your wicked ways. And I think some of our wicked ways is just the apathy. You know, there's so, so many citizens that are just clueless as to the Constitution and clueless to, you know, our history. And so as we begin to learn these things that our founder said was struck off by the hand of God, he gave it to us, you know, to, for our benefit and blessing and protection, that as we begin to revere and understand and learn these things, it justifies the heavens now to intervene and to begin to heal our land. Certainly our founding fathers knew that America, the citizens within America had a manifest destiny to be an example and a blessing to the entire human race and that we were meant to be a, a, a light on the hill. And, you know, they wanted the constitution to be one of our greatest exports. And so I'm just so happy that we're here today just slogging through this last part of the constitution that was given to us after the founding fathers had passed. So let's now turn to section four of seminar two. 
And we're going to talk about the 11th and the 12th Amendment that actually came under our founding fathers just a few years after the Constitution was ratified. And then Al is going to talk about uh, Amendments 13 through 15 that came right after the Civil War that had to do with abolishing slavery. And then he's going to talk about two very uninspired amendments that have really disrupted uh, the state of affairs in America, Amendment 16 and 17. And then I'll finish out with the rest of the amendments and that will be our class today. So if you look to section um, four of seminar two, it talks about the 11th amendment was given to protect states. Now this amendment uh, came, George Washington was still the president, but what was happening were citizens were trying to sue other states. There was a man by the name of Chisholm in South Carolina suing Georgia for some indebtedness and uh, the federal courts got involved and, and compelled Georgia to respond to the suit. And the states, you know, were very, uh, very aware. They didn't want the federal government. They wanted limited federal government. So they didn't like the federal courts almost out of uh, the gate, uh, compelling these state courts, you know, that, yeah, you have to hear, you have to hear these cases from individual citizens of other states. And so really this um, amendment just restricted federal courts from getting involved in cases between an individual and a state. So, you know, if you lived in uh, Massachusetts and someone from Virginia wanted to sue you, you had to go and work through the Massachusetts courts. So the judicial power uh, 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 courts couldn't get involved. And so that was just a protection of the state courts because they didn't like what they were seeing. And then the 12th Amendment that came under the uh, founding fathers as well was an amendment designed to correct a weakness that they began to see right in the very beginning with this electoral college. Remember, they had so many votes to try and decide how a president was going to be elected, and they ultimately decided on the electoral college. But remember what began to happen was the electors from each state that were going to vote on the presidents, and remember the person that got the most votes would become president, the person that got the second most votes from the electors would become the vice president. And we began to see pre uh, president and vice presidents that were of different philosophies and they didn't work together very well. And the exam first example of that is, is uh, John Adams, who was going to be the second president, got the most votes by the electoral college. And Thomas Jefferson became his vice president because Thomas Jefferson got the second most votes. But Adams was a federalist and Jefferson was an anti-federalist, so they never worked well together. And then the third president was Jefferson, and the second, the vice president was Aaron Burr. He got the second most votes. And Aaron Burr was, remember, he's the one that killed Hamilton in that duel. So they never got along. So in order to kind of, they, the, our founders didn't anticipate a parties, first of all, in in um, uh the presidential elections, but they just naturally, these philosophies of these men began to merge into parties. And so the 12th amendment really, uh, it provides for separate ballots for a president and a vice president. And there's there through the years, there were going to be other tinkerings with the electoral college. And sometimes people, you know, get confused about the electoral college. And I always like to recommend that Prager University, just Google electoral college, Prager University, they have a one minute video that explains the electoral college really simply. They have a five, five minute and a 20 minute. 
So, you know, if you ever get to a point where someone is trying to tell you why the Electoral College is such a bad idea, just know, pull up Prager University, one minute YouTube, and, and that will give you some talking points. And remember, we also have a Tuesday class every Tuesday, a half an hour Electoral College uh, 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 little webinar that it's um, recorded as well. If you if you ever want to take that, that's on our website as well. Okay, so I'm going to turn it over to Al to teach us amendments 13 through 17. Okay, great. Thank you, Jelini. The 13th Amendment of the Constitution, December 6, 1865. The amendment was adopted two years after the famous Emancipation Proclamation which was introduced to the public on January 1, 1863. And slavery is not unique to America as it's a human problem, not a racial problem. And I think what's unique about America, if I can do my little private editorial here, mm -hmm. was the issuance of the Emancipation Proclamation. American and England the only two countries to formally get rid of slavery as it was a topic of debate and discussion since the founding of this country. One thing that's interesting to note, the Civil War eventually turned in favor toward the North after the Emancipation Proclamation because slavery violated the covenant that America had established with God right at its beginning of its foundings. So some questions, it's relevancy, as to me, because the 13th Amendment was more symbolic than anything as the Constitution, because it's based on natural law, God's law, all men are created equal. And so really all they had to do was just enforce what was in the Constitution, but President Lincoln thought it important that he move forward the 13th Amendment. And it's also interesting to note the founders never used the word slave or slavery in the Constitution. As Madison wrote, quote, thought it wrong to admit in the Constitution the idea that there could be property in men. Okay, so the 14th Amendment. The 14th Amendment came about as the South continued its persecution and mistreatment of former slaves. Andrew Johnson took over as president after Abraham Lincoln was assassinated, and we refer, we refer to this time after the Civil War as the Reconstruction period. And President Johnson from Tennessee was a sympathizer of the South, which opened the door to this mistreatment. I think John, John Wilkes Booth not only injured President Lincoln and his family, but really injured the nation because President Lincoln had a plan for Reconstruction that have would, would have put us further along in race relations. But with Andrew Johnson, things were set back quite a bit. In fact, they even tried to impeach him because he wouldn't go along with the North and, and punishing the South. So the 14th Amendment actually flips this notion of the states being the quote unquote watchdog over the federal government to the federal government becoming the watchdog over the states. So the amendment in A here in our Manual says, this amendment provides that all persons born or naturalized in the United States are automatically citizens with equal rights, which cannot be abridged without due process of law. So this actually is a repeat of the Fifth Amendment. 
which is already in the Constitution. No person may be deprived of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. So this was now interpreted to apply to the states, thereby putting the federal government in direct stewardship over the states. So that balance between states' rights and the rights of the federal government became blurred. This amendment was poorly written. Secondly, no state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges of immunities of citizens of the United States, nor shall any state deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law, nor to deny any person the equal protection of the law. That's already stated again in Article 4, Section 2 of the Constitution. So there's an interesting provision that's not in the manual that you might want to put your notes that refers to, quote, all persons born or naturalized in the United States and subject to the jurisdiction thereof are hereby declared to be citizens of the United States and also of the states wherein they reside, close quote. So the intent behind this provision was to guarantee former slaves all the rights of full citizenship. Again, in my opinion, it wasn't necessary as all they had to do was enforce the existing constitution. In this part of the 14th Amendment, as you all can imagine, and you see it today, open the door to massive illegal immigration as it encourages immigrants to cross the border in order to have their children born in America, thereby guaranteeing their citizenship, which goes against the intent of this provision. That's why it's so important that the federal government do its job and pass immigration reform legislation, which they just don't have the political courage to do. We've been talking about this issue forever and they've not done anything about it. Okay, section six, the 16th amendment was passed on February 3rd, 1913. 1913, as Frank Sinatra would say, it was a very bad year because you had the 16th amendment the 17th Amendment, and the creation of the Federal Reserve System. And who was president during 1913? Good old Woodrow Wilson. So the power to tax was missing from the first U.S. Constitution called the Articles of Confederation. The founders believed because the federal government was to stay within Article I, Section 8, which we've talked about highlights the 20 enumerated powers. And they thought because government would be limited that we could fund the government just by taxes, imposts and duties on imports. That the federal government's budget could be handled by just taxing imports. Direct taxes were only to be employed in times of war and emergency. And, the, and, and then only a portion based on the population. So at that time, and we've talked about this before, Virginia, at the time of the Constitution, constituted, they had 10 of the 65 seats in the House of Representatives. That meant Virginia was responsible, as it retains to, pertains to direct taxes, 15% of the federal budget. That went away with the 16th Amendment. There are few, if any, amendments that have a more interesting history than the famous 16th Amendment, which authorized federal income taxes. 
the Congress shall have power to lay and collect taxes on incomes from whatever source derived without appointment among the several states and without regard to census or enumeration. This opened the door for the federal government to go into your pocket for anything. So income taxes are assessed directly against the individual and therefore constitute a direct tax. And we're going to talk about this a lot more in depth when we get to seminar three. When we get to seminar three, the attacks on the Charter of Freedom. So the 16th Amendment, as you can imagine, began with the notion of soak the rich. As they do today, the liberal parts of each party refer to the other party as the protectors of the rich. So there were several times in history before 1913 that the Democrats introduced bills in the House to provide a tax on higher incomes. But each time the conservative branch of the Republican Party killed it in the Senate. Eventually the Republicans in the Senate wore down just as they do today, drawing weary of the title, the party of the rich. So when the 16th Amendment passed, they actually said the tax would never go above 1%. They should have written that into the amendment as we see what it is now. So the interesting thing is, and we'll elaborate this on section in seminar three, did this amendment actually soak the rich? And the answer is no, because it gave rise to charitable foundations. They came into existence. And there's a provision that was tucked away in the 16th amendment that says, provided however, that nothing in this section shall apply to any corporation or association organized and operated exclusively for religious, charitable, scientific or educational purposes. Don't you think the Rockefellers, JP Morgan's family, Andrew Conakey, they saw that this was gonna happen. All the foundations of these super rich individuals were designed to qualify under one or more of those categories. And long before the amendment even came to pass, these families had their foundations set up and running. So now we've got the 17th Amendment. George Washington was one of the most foremost proponents of a Senate with members appointed by the state legislatures. So the state legislatures were to pick the senators. We've talked about this. When Jefferson returned from France, he expressed concern as to the purpose of the Senate and why it wasn't elected by the people. He didn't understand that. You may recall that Washington asked him why he poured out his hot drink in his saucer before drinking it. And Jefferson replied, to cool it. That's your blank, to cool it. And with that, Washington commented, is what the Senate is for. The Senate is to cool down any hot-headed or imprudent legislation from the House. The purpose of the Senate was to veto any radical movements from the House. So they were to ask two very important questions. Before the 16th Amendment, the states paid the taxes. So they were to ask, the first question is, can we afford it? And the second question was, does it infringe upon the rights and freedom of the people. I remember one of the things that was really cool about being in the Utah State Senate was being able to go and speak to groups 
and I had an occasion to go speak to a college class and there was an older gentleman in the class. He obviously wanted to go back and get his degree later in life, which I commended him for. But he said, the constitution was written for their time. It was written by a bunch of farmers. It doesn't apply to us today. And so after um, I physically beat him with a ruler, then I explained to the class that, listen, the primary purpose of the constitution is to protect us from an from a, a strong central government to protect the family. It's all about checks and balances. We've got the horizontal checks between the legislative, executive, and judiciary. And then we've got the vertical check, which are the, the states. And the states are to protect the people, to protect the families. Jefferson said, let no more, what did he say? He said, in questions of power, let no more be heard of confidence in man, but bind him down from mischief, mischief from the chains of the Constitution. The founders didn't even trust themselves because they knew that power corrupted and absolute power corrupts absolutely. So this amendment was ratified and pushed through the House in 1913. The House tried to do this in 1893, 94, 96, and 1900 and 1902. And the Senate did a good job of ignoring it and voting it down, but they finally gave in in 1913. Okay, Julian, back to you to take us home. Okay. Are you, are you hanging in there? So we're going to uh, finish up the 18th through the 27th Amendment. I just want you to know it took a while for me to connect the dots of how egregious the 16th and the 17th Amendment was. So you might need to go through and reread specifically the 16th and 17th Amendment. I didn't travel with all my heavy books or else I would have showed you the Making of America book that gives you an explanation clause by clause of what the founders intended and what they came after they um, you know, passed on. And it, it, it's some really good commentary about the 16th and 17th Amendment. I recommend getting that book. Can I but, say one more thing yeah, about that? Yeah, sure. Okay. I should have said this earlier. So you've got the 16th Amendment, gives Congress the power to go into your pockets and take your money. Then you pass the 17th Amendment and you make the senators elected by popular vote. So how do you stay in office? You stay in office by bringing the goodies home, by taking from those that have and give it to those who have not. So when you've got the Senate and the House operating, just like similar bodies where they're trying to be problem solvers and answer to the people and elected by the people, then government grows. And the 16th Amendment facilitated that. So that's where the 16th and 17th Amendment are probably the two most egregious amendments in the Constitution. And we'll talk more about that in Seminar 3. Back to you, Julie. Yeah, so before the 17th Amendment, senators would go home every weekend because they were beholden to the state legislature who put them in office. And they would ask the state legislature, look, these are the pro proposed bills. And, you know, we're going to have to come up with our part of the budget to pay for it. Do, should, does our state want it? Is it going to impose upon our, you know, our state's rights? Can we afford it kind of thing? But when the 17th Amendment was passed, senators are now, you know, uh, elected by the popular vote. And so do you think the first time, you know, it's citizens vote 
for the election of the senator. But the second time that senator runs for office six years later, it is usually special interest money, union money, PAC money that puts him into office. And now he becomes more beholden to those people than coming home every weekend and asking the state legislature, what's the best way to represent my state? And, and, And so, you know, imagine those seven uh, Republican senators that voted six months ago to remove uh, um, President Trump when he was impeached by the House. Imagine if those seven senators had to go home to their uh, state uh, legislature and ask, uh, "Does is the consensus of the state that we should vote to remove the president? Being in Utah tonight, I can tell you that Senator Romney was one of those senators to vote to remove uh, President Trump from office and the state did not support him. So if Senator Romney knew that he had to come home to the state legislature and give an accounting for why he went against the entire state, uh, I dare say the state legislature probably wouldn't put Romney back in office and he would have thought twice about voting the way that he did. And the 17th Amendment removed that responsibility of the senator to come home and give an accounting to the state legislature and ask for counsel and guidance on how they should vote when they go back to Washington, D.C. So they are no longer looking out. No one's looking out for the state anymore, are they? You can see that as as, uh, now it's just a popular vote. And it takes $16 million on average to put a senator uh, for him to win his reelection. And most senators don't bring that kind of money to office. So they have to rely on these special interest groups and these PAC monies. And so to get reelected, they have to kind of pander to what the special interests want, not what the citizens of their state want. And so anyways, that's one a major disruption of that 17th Amendment. Okay, so we're on to the 18th Amendment which was revoked 14 years after it was passed here in in 1919 and it prohibited alcohol. Uh, No longer could they sell or transport Mm -hmm. alcohol from state to state and even export it. Now, you know, even before the Civil War, there was a temperance campaign that was going on to try, it was like a temperance campaign, was like a, a social movement against the consumption of alcohol beverages because this campaign cited that alcohol it has uh, negative effects on the, the health of a person, on family life, on the personality of a, of a person. I mean, uh, there's some members in our family that have struggled with alcoholism and we've seen how destructive it was. So- Why are you looking at me like it was me? <laughs> I, I, don't, I didn't have a problem with alcoholism. No, no, extended family members. Okay, but, but we've seen firsthand, you know, what that can do. And, and this is kind of the impetus of why this 18th Amendment, uh, uh, you know, to, to do away with um, alcohol. And so you can see after the Civil War, five states adopted it, then nine states, and then a seven, 1917 World War I is raging. And Congress actually passed a lever act, which uh, was going to control food measures and alcohol beverages became outlawed because they said that the alcohol consumption was a waste because they needed that alcohol uh, for munitions and manufacturings during World War One. And then shortly after that, this is when they were able to pass this amendment. Now, this amendment might have worked if it had just been against hard liquor, but it also included the, the lighter stuff like wine and beer. And there was a certain ethnic groups, uh, immig- immigrants of America, 
uh, who came to America and in, in Europe and so forth, that drinking wine was just a part of their nightly tradition with their meal. And so the scarcity of liquor uh, created um, bootlegging and speakeasies, these establishments that were illegally selling uh, beverages or people were brewing it at home and selling it. And, and at this time, this is when the Kennedys got rich and some say they never accepted the Kennedy family into society because they didn't make their money legitimately. They believed that they had gotten involved in some of, you know, this bootlegging era. And so of course, because there was such a, um, a high demand for alcohol and it was so hard to find, the prices went up and then the gangsters got right, involved, the mafia, came on mafia got involved. And so all the criminal violence and racketeering 14 years later, they just decided, uh, and we're gonna talk about it in amendment 21 to revoke this, um, this, this, 18th Amendment. Okay, so, um, but you know, to me, this is an example of what happens um, when the federal government gets involved and forces people to do what is right. You know, the freedom to choose is really the best workable option, and the federal government was forcing them to, you know, make these decisions not to uh, overconsume alcohol. And, uh, and so our founding fathers wanted the states and the people to determine their standards of decency and morality and safety. They didn't want the federal government to. And so we're gonna find that in the 21st amendment, they revoked it and they didn't, they didn't say alcohol consumption was gonna be legal, but they wanted the states to go and determine their liquor laws. And that's exactly uh, what, should, what should have been done. So it's interesting, the 18th amendment was a failure and they, they should have never really put it into the constitution. Okay, the 19th amendment is the right for the women to vote. That was in 1920. So last year in 2020, we celebrated the 100 year anniversary of the right of women to vote. And I had to actually speak, you mm -hmm. came with me, remember Independence Hall last year in November to co commemorate the, the 100 year of the women vote. They actually had me dress up as a suffragette. It was kind of uh, it, it was cute, <laughs> but I said, okay, so we've now secured the right to vote. It's been a hundred years. Now mothers, we got to be about protecting the right to vote. Cause this was right after the election time. And we were really questioning the integrity of the, the last election. The interesting thing about this amendment that came forth in 1920, look in 1787, when the constitution was written in the very first article in section two, it said states can determine who votes women could have been voting all along. In fact, 20 states had women voting at the time this amendment was passed. So was it really necessary to have this amendment? Was it really necessary for the, the federal government to come and tell states what they had to do? Because it, it was supposed to be up to the states in the very beginning. Right. They, they always blame the founders. Well, they didn't include women in the constitution right to vote. They didn't include anybody that was supposed to be the states that determine the qualifications yeah. for voting. And you can find that in Article 1, Section 2. But, you know, the major argument against the, the women's suffragette movement and women voting was that, look, men all along were representing the family. The man had the vote, but he, he we assumed that he was counseling with the family and he represented the family. But the argument that finally won for this, you know, women's vote amendment Oh, was the idea that maybe letting the women vote, it would clean up the politics because uh, women do have a refining, civilizing influence on you men. Stacey Abrams. Uh, yeah. 
But what really happened, you know, even though women make up half of the percentage of, uh, of the population and potentially the vote, the voting turnout of women has always been considerably lower than men. And I hear even women today uh, will say, oh, I'm not really into politics. It's not my thing. It's just too nasty. And, you know, I think we have to understand that, you know, if, if we're going to be able to maintain this republic that's based on uh, natural law, God's law, people's law, we have to put into office morally strong and virtuous leaders. And so it's important that we, we vote, that we do our civic duty. It's maybe not even anything to do with politics, but if we want to keep this country, you know, the way it was intended to be, we got to put good men and women in. And so good men and good mamas, we need your votes. And right. so in Virginia, more than half of the people that go to church on a regular basis, more than half of the people in Virginia are not even registered to vote. These are church going people. So, you know, voting really is a privilege and it's a, it's a way we protect our country and we got to secure our vote by voting, you know, and voting our values. And so anyways, the 20th amendment is uh, passed in 1933. It's considered the lame duck Amendment. Now, just bear with me on, on this one. When the Constitution was put forth, the new government officially would begin operation March 4th of every year. Uh, and since Article 1, Section 4 of the Constitution provided that the congressmen who were defeated in that November election, and it would always be in even years, particularly House members every two years, they were required to attend the next session until their term expired the following March. So there was a potential that they um, wouldn't leave office for 13 months and they would represent people who had refused to reelect them. So there was a problem. So they put forth this 20th amendment and they also changed the date when the president would take office before it had been in March of the, the, the year after he was elected in November. And they moved it up from March 4th to uh, January 20th. And um, they had that four month lag originally in the constitution because sometimes it took that long for a president to get to Washington DC. I mean, they were still taking horses and buggies and trains. And we just went and visited Lincoln's home. Remember a few weeks ago when we were making, this was before the transmission went kaput and we went to Springfield, Illinois and Lincoln actually left in February it, it, it was going to take him a while to get to Washington, D.C. to be inaugurated in March. But with modern transportation, we don't we didn't need four months for presidents to get to D.C. And so they they put forth this 20th Amendment to kill the lag time between House members uh, and also to shrink, you know, from the time the president is elected in November and sworn in, you know, about two months later instead of four months. Now, I know during this last election, when there was a lot of allegation of, of fraud, I think a lot of people would have appreciated additional two months to investigate, but, but that's why there was nothing conspiratorial about that. that that's, they just wanted to eliminate that lame duck period. Makes sense? Okay, the 21st Amendment just repealed that, uh, you know, the Prohibition 18th Amendment. and. and Note that it didn't legalize intoxicating beverages. It's just simply turned the problem back to the state. So once again, if the constitution is silent on an issue that founders intended for that issue to be hashed out 
amongst the states and its people. Okay, the um, 22nd Amendment um, uh, gave uh, term limits to a president to two terms. Now, up until this point, they didn't specify how long the president of the United States could run it um, or could stay in office, but everyone pretty much followed the example of George right. Washington. Well, they also thought that Washington, they could, he could be president for as long as he wanted to yeah. because they thought that men like him would be in office yeah. and it'd be okay. Yeah, right. But, you know, George Washington didn't believe in uh, career politicians, so to speak. And so he he served his term, served his time. And then uh, when he felt necessary, it was the time he he stepped down and went back home to the, you know, put, put Mount Vernon. But uh, so and every president up until that point had followed his example, except uh Franklin Delaware, uh, Delano Roosevelt came along in 1933 and um, served one term, two terms, three terms, and was just elected into his fourth term when he would pass away. So he had served 12 years. And remember, he was the president was that was the author of the New Deal and really left us the legacy of big government. And so after he passed, they put forth this amendment that presidents can only serve two terms now. Really, our founding fathers believed that term limits should be called voting. You know, if someone was a bad guy, vote him out of office. And, and so that's another reason why they might not have put a, a limit on um, presidential service. Okay, the 23rd Amendment provided presidential electors to the District of Columbia. Now this went against what our founding fathers wanted. They wanted that 10 mile radius of Washington DC to be a politically neutral zone because they saw in our early founding when the Capitol was in um, Philadelphia that it really became a storm center of, of violence to have you know, the, the seat of government be really politicized around it. So um, the 23rd Amendment went against, you know, this, this idea of having it be a, a neutral zone, that 10 mile radius for the District of Columbia. And it actually even would um, specify that they could have a member of Congress, Eleanor Holmes Norton. And even though she can't vote on the floor, she can vote in a committee. And so what this amendment did is really created a politicized zone in Washington, D.C. Now, Al and I, we live in Washington, D.C. We live like a couple of miles from D.C. <laughs> My son, who I haven't seen in a long time, come say hi. So this is our uh, third born, Frankie Jackson. <laughs> What's up? We don't see Frank very often. Frank plays for a high sweetie. Frankie plays for the Detroit Pistons. This is this is our basketball boy. So he's just rolling in for the family reunion. Thank you, son, for honoring your mama's wish and coming to the family reunion. The family will be thrilled to see Frankie. So um, anyways, so we're talking about D.C. being such a political place now. You know, our founders wanted to be a neutral zone. So the 23rd Amendment went completely against what the founders wanted. And Al and I living and raising our kids in D.C., it is one of the most politically charged places. We have lived in D.C. under five presidents, <laughs> Clinton, Bush, Obama, Trump, and Biden. And uh, were there when W was there. Yeah, I said Bush. Okay. I said Bush. And so, you know, it's interesting because it's a very liberal place now. Uh, 
and uh, the mayor, we've never known a Republican mayor. We've never known one Republican to sit on the city council. And so when a um, Democrat president is in, I mean, we, we, we go out to restaurants and there was Bill Clinton. We, we did we did dinner with Bill Clinton when he was president in Georgetown, remember Sequoia's? And Obama at Christmas, we'd go out to, you know, to Union Station, a real popular shopping place. And uh, I remember Bush, we went to his uh, inauguration, inaugural parade and we had the little kids with us. And there, it, I mean, there were such naysayers. The signs were so explicit. I was like, this is not a, this is not a child-friendly parade. And uh, President Trump, we, we never saw him. He never was out and about in Washington, D.C. because it was very hostile towards him. In fact, the only place he would ever go was his Trump hotel to eat out at the BLT Prime. And they have a special table reserved for him. And no one was able to, no one would sit at that table. We go and we go, yeah, there's the president's table. So we have seen, you know, this amendment really make Washington, D.C. a very politicized uh, place. So the 24th Amendment uh, talks about it, it uh, uh, did away with a poll tax. Some of the southern states were actually charging people to vote uh, a couple bucks. And they said that it discouraged voting amongst poor black and poor white. So they did away, we had to have an amendment to do away with the little poll tax in order to be able to vote in the South. The 25th Amendment is called the, dis, the presidential disability. What goes, what happens if something goes wrong with the president? He loses it, he becomes incapacitated. And this was uh, put forth in 1967. So in the first section of this amendment, it talks about what is already in the constitution, that if a president uh, dies, uh, then the vice president takes his place. But the, the real foul play comes in the second and third section where it says, if the vice president feels that the president is unfit for the job and she can, he or she, <laughs> sorry, can convince eight out of the 15 cabinet members that he is not up to the task, she and the cabinet- Are you predicting something? No, I'm not predicting. No, no. She and- he, uh, she, he and she can, can remove the president. And so, and then what happens is, is that if the president comes back and says, wait a minute, I, I'm not crazy. I, I'm fit for the job. Congress actually has 21 days to take up this issue. For, so for 21 days, this unelected vice president and whoever she might put in as vice president, she, she or he, I'm just saying she, cause it's a she right now. I'm not implying that she, She's going to do that. Mm -hmm. But, you know, th this this amendment really is dangerous and has to be done away with. And when we talk about seminar for healing of the Constitution in America, we need to get rid of this amendment because it's poorly structured and it's an opportunity for nefarious maneuvering. Now, just think if this amendment were in place when President or when Abraham Lincoln during the Civil War, when he stood alone at this time in making some of the most difficult decisions in his cabinet and his vice president were not real fans of his, they could have easily removed him under this amendment. And in fact, Pelosi and Congress threatened to invoke this. They actually passed on January 16th a resolution invoking the 25th Amendment to remove President Trump. But why couldn't they do that? because it has to be initiated by the vice president and president 
Pence wanted nothing to do with that resolution, so it didn't happen. But it's it's a it's a bad amendment, and uh, and it needs to be done away with. So the twenty sixth amendment just lowered the voting age from twenty one down to eighteen, and and you know opponents of this amendment said, wait a minute, this could po possibly develop that. Uh, uh, block of voting from 18 to 22 that is sometimes susceptible those young young first-time voters to emotional appeal and, and oh, really? engagement you know in political uh, activism and and they say that it was this voting block that actually uh, helped elect president uh, obama and certainly widened the the voter base 11 percent more 18 to 24 year olds voted than any other age in this last election with President Biden. 65% of 18 to 24 year olds voted for uh, President Biden. So the arguments for this amendment was, look, if these if these young people are old enough to fight and go into war, they should be old enough to vote. And if, you know, if their president can send them to war, they should be able to vote for that president. And so this amendment uh, lowered the voting age. And the last amendment actually was put forth 203 years ago by uh, Madison. And he simply said, members of Congress cannot give themselves a raise while uh, uh, Congress is in session. And it took 203 years to ratify that. Uh, and that is um, what the 27th amendment is. So we didn't actually get, the, the, the last time we've gotten a an amendment to the constitution really was in 1971, if you don't count that last amendment in 92. So it's been almost 50 years. You can see it's it's really difficult to amend the constitution. You haven't amended it in 50 years. And so this brings us to the end of the constitution. Do you feel like, do you feel like you got it? You got a working knowledge of, of it? I, I'm telling you, this one page outline that I talk so much about Print it off. Um, it's if you go down to view our presentations under momsforamerica.us, the link is there and you can print it off. But it just gives a one-line explanation of the seven articles, Leg Sassar, and just a couple word explanation of the 27 amendments. And if you can at least have a working knowledge, you know, of some of, of these amendments that, you know, maybe you're not just gonna blindly be told what the constitution says and, and, and what it doesn't say, because you, you kind of now know how to navigate the constitution. I'm telling you, yeah, there's the one page outline. And so I would print off five of them and I would put one in your purse and I would put one maybe in your Bible and put one in places that you're gonna go to often and just do a quick perusal and, and review. I've actually memorized all the seven articles and I've, you know, I've memorized the, the amendments and I just, you know, briefly explain, oh yeah, the 25th amendment is the presidential disability. The 26th amendment is, is lowering the voting age. The, the 27th amendment is you can't get to have a pay rise. So can you see that's when I say memorize, just memorize them like that. You know, you don't have to actually memorize word for word sections, but just having working knowledge of what these amendments are really make you speak way more authoritatively mm -hmm. and at a, a, a greater position of strength instead of just speaking on emotion when you can actually evoke. Well, no, the First Amendment, Section 1, that talks about the Establishment Clause, the founders didn't mean, you know, that we couldn't pray in school because they knew, you know, that 
we needed religion, morality, and knowledge taught in school. Prayer is important to maintain the republic. So see if you if you came back with that kind of response instead of you know meeting emotion with emotion, you you, you just speak at a a stronger position of authority when you can know just a little bit about the constitution. And so I hope that this last four weeks of studying the constitution has kind of refreshed your memory about history and what our founding fathers intended and this beautiful uh, formula of success that, that we began to experience under these principles that first hundred years. And that we can begin to kind of figure out how to solve some of our problems if we go back to what they intended and what was really working when we were really working under the constitution that they gave us. Now, starting next week, we're going to get into seminar three. So I really hope that you've had a chance to get your little manuals. Here it is, the attacks on the charter of freedom, the attacks on the constitution by organizations and people that don't love America. And they systematically began to break down, you know, the family, religion, the constitution. And it's gonna be a little jarring as you read this because we're living it. And it's in our lifetime that we have seen some of these, you know, attacks and, and this digression occur in our country. And so we're gonna talk about these groups that wanted to fundamentally change the direction of America and they use their time and they use their fast uh, resources and money. Uh, and it was really to serve their own special interests. And we're also gonna talk about how millions of dollars were spent in the 1900s to defame and defile the founding fathers. I mean, if if you can get Jefferson and George Washington and Franklin Delano, if you can, it's not Franklin, George Washington, ben Franklin. ben Franklin, there you go. If you can it get people to think that they were perverts and degenerates and hypocrites and racists, then you minimize their life and therefore you minimize their teachings and writings and you don't study what they intended. And, and we have seen that kind of attack on our founding fathers in the last, you know, 50, mm -hmm. 50 you, years. You can't destroy the doctrine. You go after the personality. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what's been done. And we'll also learn what in the world has happened to education. So Al just spoke Every time we come to Utah, Al has speaking assignments because he was a state senator here in Utah for a time. So Tuesday night and Wednesday night, he spoke to over hundreds of people on the critical race theory and, um, and what's going on in the schools to teach these kids that there are, you're either a, an oppressor or you're oppressed, you know? And, and so how in the world has is school gotten into the business of, you know, teaching that kind of stuff? And we'll learn about these godless reformers that came along in the late 1800s and the early 1900s, Horace Mann, John Dewey. I mean, good heavenly days. There's schools all over the country named after these godless atheist men who wanted to fundamentally change the classrooms of America. And, uh, and so we're going to talk about this. Now, you know, we're halfway through our Healing of America seminar. We're halfway through. We've gone eight of the 16 weeks. So proud of you for hanging in there in the midst of the summer. I mean, this is a big ask and you're rising to the challenge. But keep in mind, look, 
85% of the constitution is intact. So, you know, don't, don't think that it's in shambles, but there's about 15% because of some of these amendments have really caused some damage and disrepair and it's not operating, our country isn't operating the way it was supposed to under this constitution. So typically there's two ways to get a nation to change. You get the people to wake up and to repent to begin to learn, you know, these things that they were kind of oblivious about or there's some kind of government uh, intervention or internal collapse. And we don't want to see that. And that, you know, I, as with Moms for America, we believe that, you know, women and good men next to their women are, are going to be about leading this change because when families begin to feel and feel the protective umbrella of the constitution begin to be removed and these fiery darts of, of, the community and the schools and the state and the nation hitting upon their children in the way of bad legislation or judicial decisions that are against what the founders intended or big tech censorship and godless education and, and mandated vaccinations or masks and, and corrupt elections. I mean, these are all things that are, you know, we're feeling that are, are threatening our families you know, it's kind of the mamas that rise up and then they wake dad and, uh, and then we kind of move into action. And I, you know, I hope when you're feeling like what's going on, you remember, we talk about this a lot in these Healing of America seminars. We don't look to Washington DC to tell us what we can and cannot do. We don't look to the president to dictate what, what freedoms will you give us? We look to God for our freedoms and deliverance and solutions. And then we we make our family time a high priority. We keep our kids close to us. And as we learn, we teach it to our kids. As we look to God, we teach our kids to look to God. And we, we study the word with our kids. And then we learn the constitution from the viewpoint of our founding fathers. What did they intend? I mean, they said this is what was struck off by the hand of God and, and he will bless a nation that follows what he gives them. And that he's a God of miracles. We studied all about the miracles of America in seminar number one, and he's still a God of, of miracles. And if we do those things, the last thing is he'll put in our hearts what we need to be doing. And it's going to look a little bit different for every one of you. You know, are you going to run for office? Are you going to support a good candidate? I just talked to one of the mamas that took our Healing of America seminar. And when she got about halfway through, she was inspired to run for her school board. And she she won her primary. And she said, if I win the primary, I'll win the general election. Mm -hmm. So she started a little parent coalition about two months ago because parents are not happy about this CRT in her community. And it went from three parents to over a hundred parents now. And she'll say it's because of the lessons that she learned in that first seminar, how God had the back of Joan of Arc and Christopher Columbus and the pilgrims and maybe God's going to have her back as she does something really scary, like run for the school board. And so it's amazing as you put forth this effort to learn these stories and miracles and histories and constitutions, how God will use you as an instrument in his hand to help heal this nation because God in heaven did not establish this first free people in modern times just to see it collapse into oblivion. 
America will be saved and it will be because of, of wonderful families like you. So we commend you for showing up. Get your seminar manual for seminar number three. You're going to be fascinated, I promise you, by that seminar. Al, do you have anything to say? No, no, we're good. Thank you. <laughs> okay, thanks so much. And we will see you.